Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 66. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm your host. And today we are talking about porch identity. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. Today we have Dr. Kelly Fayard on the show. Dr. Fayard is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Denver. She earned her BA in cultural anthropology and religion from Duke University and a certificate in museum studies, as well as an MA and PhD in anthropology from the University of Michigan. Her research deals primarily with the Porch Band of Creek Indians in Southern Alabama, where she is an enrolled citizen. She is currently working on a book manuscript entitled Fighting to Belong, Race, Kinship, and Community Among the Porch Band of Creek Indians that examines the methods and actions the Porch Creek use to define themselves as Creek, given the stereotypes and assumptions about what it means to claim an Indian identity. So welcome to the show, Kelly. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yes, I am so excited to have you. I I haven't gotten uh, this much of a rave review for a podcast in a while. Your student, who, who we both know, was so excited for me to have you on. So I am very excited to have you on after after hearing all of the, the good things from them. So excited to have you. Thank you. Yeah. So let's get started with what got you into this field? What got you interested, excited about this type of work? So I grew up in and around the Porch Creek community. And from when I was really tiny, there was always an anthropologist at our like our major tribal events. Um, His name is J. Anthony Paredes. He was an anthropologist who was trained in the 1950s at the University of New Mexico, Um, did his dissertation field work in, I think, like around Minnesota um, with Ojibwe folks. And then he got a a tenure track job down in Florida. And we happened to be the closest tribal community to where he was working. And so he started coming around and was really instrumental in helping us get federal recognition and things like that. When I was younger, I mean, he was just a part of the community all the time. So as an undergraduate, I took a class with my advisor at the time, Oren Starn, called Native North America. And I decided for my final research paper, I was going to write about Porch. I knew that there were some articles and book chapters that he had published and produced. And so I was super excited about that. And I started reading them and got really upset because I felt like the porch community that I was seeing was not being represented in the kinds of writings that he was, he was doing. So I, you know, was kind of outraged in only the way that a young undergraduate can be and went to my advisor and I said, you know, what can I do about this? And he said, well, you know, if you want to write back and have people listen to you, you really need a PhD in anthropology. And I said, well, what about native studies? And he said, hmm, Anthropologists don't really read native studies, which I think has changed a lot since this conversation. But at the time, I think that was really true. So I was like, all right, then I'm going to get a PhD in anthropology. (laughs) And so I sometimes call it a spite PhD because it was really only about being able to write back against the things that Tony had written about us. You know, it's kind of been difficult because he was so beloved in our community. And I remember when I got my first tenure track job, he wrote to me, it was right after I defended my dissertation and he wanted a copy of it. And, you know, the introduction had a lot of critiques of his work. And I was, you know, suddenly very embarrassed to send that to him, but I did. And I, you know, wrote this long note that was basically like, I respect what you've done, but, you know, we're very different places with the way that we're thinking about anthropology. And so, you know, basically, 
no offense, but, you know, <laughs> and, you know, he, he was, he was so gracious. I mean, he wrote back and he was like, you know, Kelly, I don't think that we disagree as much as you think we do. Hmm. And towards the end of his life, we actually ended up sort of making peace in a way because we had decided to write a paper together for the anthropology, the big anthropology conference. But uh, he he ended up getting really sick and died before before hmm. we were able to do that. But just working towards that with him, I think, was was good for both of us. But, yeah, th- I mean, that was kind of, a, a you know, the circular path that kind of led me to you know, just being interested in anthropology and, and ended up, you know, getting a, a PhD in, in the field. Well, a, a spite PhD, I think that's the first time we've had one of those exactly on the podcast. That's, <laughs> I, that's really cool, though, that it that you two were able to communicate on it and, you know, eventually come around to collaborating even yeah, I mean, there were there were some other things that happened too along along this path, and I think that there were there were moments where, like the first time I saw him at an anthropology meeting, he said to me, "I never thought I'd see the day a Porch Creek was at the AAA," oh. and I just don't think he understood how like kind of condescending that felt to me at the time. Yeah, I 100% believe that he he thought he was giving me a compliment. Yeah, I mean, it was a weird power dynamic. You know, mm-hmm. but then for my certificate in museum studies, I did an internship at the Porch Museum. And I remember he came to visit and he had all of these CDs of interviews he had done in the 1960s and 70s. And so he had interviews with people who were born in the 1800s. Like it is a treasure oh, trove. Wow. And I, I remember asking him, you know, now that we have a museum and we have, you know, a fireproof vault and we have places to store things, could we get copies of those so that if people come in doing research or want to ask about family members and things like that, could we have a copy of these? And he said, you know, I've decided that I'm going to put these in the national archives. What? So I think, yeah, I think that's, that's where they're going to be. And I was of course, super mad because again, I'm in the middle of my spite PhD when this happens. And I said, okay, cool. You know what? If I have to go to DC and make copies myself after you have kicked the bucket, then I'll do that. And (laughs) I stopped talking to him. But then like two weeks later, he called me at the museum and he said, I just want you to know that one of my best friends just died. It was a freak accident. He fell off a ladder, Mm. but it's got me thinking about my own mortality. And there's a box with your name on it with all of the recordings that I have coming to the museum. And so we did end up getting copies of those, but it kind of took, I think it took a lot of work on his part to kind of, I mean, I, I, looking back, I really do respect everything that he did for the tribe because there's no way we would have gotten federal recognition without his work. And, And I also respect the fact that he was willing to learn at at the stage in his career that he was. I mean, he was willing to listen to me and to take their critiques in stride and, you know, to really sort of, I don't want to say grow because that sounds like condescending to him, but like really be open-minded to what I have to say and kind of the critiques that I was making. And so I do really respect him for that. But I mean, we we kind of butted heads a couple of times before, before that came to pass, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was very much the generation of, there was no expectation that anyone from the community would ever, you know, read their work or challenge them right. in any way. So, you know, exactly. I think just the fact that he came around in the end, you know, does say a lot, even though it, it took some work on your part yeah. to get to get him there. But because, yeah, there's certainly yeah, plenty absolutely. of people from that generation I, I, that <laughs> would not have come around. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, I feel like I've kind of found that out. I mean, I've, I've been finding that out since I've been in this, in this discipline, like just right. how, you know, people dig their heels in, yeah. especially when it's somebody from a community that has been one that has been written about, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I said of that generation, there's still plenty in this generation where it's the same thing. So, so yeah. Oh, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Well, okay. So let's, let's go back to um, your dissertation, your spite dissertation and tell me, tell me more about 
what you were really hoping to say with that, what you were hoping to study, what you were interested in? Yeah. So when I started my field work, I started my field work in 2009 and I had really different expectations of what my, my research and my dissertation was going to be about. Because in January of 2009, that's when Porch opened its first casino and it was all anybody could talk about. And I mean, we're in Alabama, so we only have class two gaming, which means that there's no table games and the slot machines are run off of a bingo algorithm. So it's not like a slot machine in Vegas. When you play a slot in Porch, it plays out a bingo game on the machine to figure out whether or not you won. So it's a little different, Hmm. but it opened up and it was, you know, a 17 story hotel, which was probably the tallest building in in 250 miles or something. I don't know. It's like very, I mean, it's in the middle of rural Alabama, but I was going to say that nearest 17 story building to me, I don't even probably Albuquerque. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, it was like a big deal. And I had decided like I wasn't going to write about it because I felt like Jessica Catalino's book about the Seminole was like the book on Indian gaming. Right. And so mm-hmm. I didn't really feel the need to to do anything about casinos or or anything like that. I was kind of interested in kinship and how people decide who's related to who and, you know, how, you know, just that whole thing. But when I got home to do this, it's all anybody could talk about. And mm-hmm. I mean, rightfully so, because it was very exciting for the community. I mean, it was the first time there was a, you know, like an entertainment complex anywhere near this town of 8,000 that I grew up in. But what ended up happening is that once the casino kind of took off and the tribe became more profitable, there were all, there was like an influx of people who wanted to suddenly claim this Porch Creek identity. And oh. my mom, who grew up, yeah. Yeah. So my mom who went to all Indian schools up until high school, she kind of talked about how when she was growing up and, you know, even though it was way past the Brown v. Board of Education decision to integrate schools, it is Southern Alabama. <laughs> so there's a lot of kind of segregation still happening. And she went to this all Indian school until high school. And as she started going to high school, there were all of these students who were discriminating, you know, with really racist kind of ways towards the native students that were coming there as well as the black students. And Mm. I think what was most interesting to me is that some of the people who could pass as white were involved in this discrimination and were Mm. then the ones who were lining up first to get put on the tribal roles. And so to me, that was just, really fascinating because suddenly people in porch were seeing the folks that they thought were, you know, these super racist people in high school showing up at the Indian health service clinic and them being shocked at why this person would be there. And so the porch community sort of started coming up with ways to describe these folks. And so a lot of people called them BC or AC Indians. So before casino or after casino. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, which I, I, I think is pretty pretty entertaining. Uh-huh. Um, the other thing is that all of the people all of the people who were trying to become enrolled and were successful in that after the casino came, their tribal role numbers all started with number three thousand. And so the other kind of way that people described them was to call them the three thousands at the oh, time. Okay. And so it was just really interesting to me to sort of see the way in which the legal definition of what a citizen looked like was versus what the community decided about particular people. So mm-hmm. there were people who obviously had the one quarter blood quantum and were able to get on the roll because of that, but who had, had participated in this like anti-native racism back in the day but we're obviously interested in any kind of economic incentive to being enrolled. But then on the other hand, you had people who were born and raised in the community who did not meet the definition of an enrolled citizen. So they had less than one quarter blood quantum who aren't enrolled citizens, but who are very much thought of as, you know, Porch Creek. And so I was just really interested in thinking through you know, what that looked like and, and how, how people decided who belonged and who didn't 
outside of the legal definition that the, you know, like the tribal council decides upon or that is voted in, you know, like the legal requirements for citizenship. Yeah, this is definitely something that's been, I feel like, coming up a lot lately in in the tribes that I've been working with where there's some major concerns of like, for example, uh, working on a an MOU involving ceremony and people having the conversation about like, you know, on the one hand, not wanting community members who would be appropriate for that um, to be left out. But then on the other hand, having that very real fear of people who don't know what they're doing because they are aren't part of the community really coming in right. and, and doing ceremony and, you know, hurting somebody. Right. So yeah, it, it seems like yeah. this topic has is is come been coming up a lot lately. Well, and especially since now you have like people who are interested in having their DNA tested and they're suddenly, yeah. you know, native mm-hmm. because, you know, their DNA test shows that they're one percent like Native American or whatever. So a lot mm-hmm. of those people are also always you know, kind of calling the tribal enrollment office to ask about things like that, but also just like native scholars in general. I mean, if people email me or call me about things like that too, and I always just direct them to kill Kim Talbert's work around native American DNA and thinking through like, okay, if a community doesn't claim you, then you can't claim the community. You know what I mean? Mm, so, mm-hmm. yeah. So I imagine, you know, with like the commercial DNA test, it's not like it distinguishes at all either. Right. I mean, it just says like indigenous no, or Native American. It's it's not like it's saying, oh, you have a quarter, you know, Danae or something like that. Right. 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 That's exactly right. It is incredibly generic. And, you know, a lot of times I feel like people who are taking those DNA tests are really looking for something like something significant, something that's meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they try to make meaning out of it. And it's really hard to do that because you're right. There's no kind of specifics. It just says like this generic thing. And I mean, even in, you know, higher ed, we see a lot of people trying to claim a native identity without knowing any of that stuff based on DNA tests, which is, Mm. you know, as you know, incredibly problematic. It's something that I feel like we're going to have to talk about a lot more as, you know, as not only like indigenous scholars, but also just like as citizens of the world, I guess, to, to think more about what those, what those findings mean. So when people reach out to your tribe's enrollment office and they're like, Hey, look, I got this DNA test and it says that I'm indigenous. Is it usually like they're reaching out because like, Hey, they live nearby and you're the nearest tribe or are they reaching out? Like, because, Oh, great grandma said, you know, that there was some sort of connection to, to Porch Creek or something. It, do you get a sense of like why they're reaching out to your tribe specifically? Yeah. I mean, I, I can't speak about the enrollment office. I can only tell you about the people that I've been in contact with who have contacted That's me true. personally. <laughs> right. But, but they're mostly, I, you know, I think that they, a lot of cases, it seems to me like they've just run across my name and it's not necessarily about Porch Creek. It's more kind of like they're searching for something, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that they're trying to find, I don't know, some meaning in their lives. This is the sense that I get is that they're really looking for something to hold on to. And that I'm just somebody random who thinks about Indian identity. And so I end up with some of those interesting emails in my inbox. But there's a book by Cersei Sturm, Becoming Indian that I assign in all of my sort of intro to Native North America classes because she does such a wonderful job talking about race shifters. That's what she defines as people who were born not Indigenous and then begin claiming an Indigenous identity over the course of their lifetime. And so I, I think that that is like a really illuminating source to, to read and to think through because she does a really good job of showing what people... And hers is specifically around Cherokee cases and and fake Mm -hmm. Cherokee groups around the United States. Mm -hmm. But she does such a good job of really showing this balanced and fair view of people who are seeking that identity in the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book is all from Cherokee citizens from the three federally recognized Cherokee tribes. 
and what their reactions to those race shifters are. And so I think that is a good place to to look for sort of meaning around why people are doing this or why they're so interested in claiming this Indian identity or, or some kind of indigeneity. All right. Well, we are already at our first break point, but I have so many more questions to ask you when we get back. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so we're back from our break and... Kelly and I were just having a really interesting conversation. Couldn't help myself. I had to keep asking questions about our identity during the break. And Kelly, you were telling me a little bit about how some of the identity issues are a little bit different from for your tribe, because I was asking about, you know, groups of people where there was a connection in their family and then that connection was severed because of boarding schools or urban relocation or them being put in foster care, all sorts of different situations, um, having to flee from violence, like in Guatemala, for example, and and people then trying to come back and reconnect to roots that more like are only, you know, a generation off, as opposed to the whole like trying to create an indigenous identity. And then um, you had some, some interesting things uh, to say about how uh, Porch was a little bit different in that situation. So... Would you mind telling our audience about that? Yeah. So I was just saying that, you know, Porch is a little bit different just because we weren't fairly recognized until the fall. The announcement was made in the fall of 1983, but it didn't become official until 1984. And so because of that, a lot of the compulsory boarding school or assimilationist projects that were happening to other tribes, they didn't really hit Porch in the same way because they were kind of an unknown community until the, around the 1930s. And in the 1930s, one of the Episcopal priests from the, the neighboring town of Atmore wrote to the Bishop of Alabama and said, we have a, quote, unchurched and unschooled population, you know, right outside of, of Alabama, or right outside of Atmore. And I think that you need to send some missionaries here to, you know, help with that. And so it really wasn't until the 1930s that there's any record of porch sort of existing because in the 1800s there was because porch citizens got land grants from the government in the 1800s for serving as as wilderness guides and things like that. There were a couple of acts of Congress actually that were that were done in the late 1800s to give those land tracts to certain individuals. But there wasn't really sort of a an acknowledgement that Porch existed as, you know, like a quote unquote Indian community until after the 1930s. Wait, so, OK, all right. Please forgive me if this is a stupid yeah, question. Ahead. But again, I work in the Southwest. So, I mean, from what I understand, Porch is the only federally recognized tribe in Alabama. Is that correct? That is correct. OK, so how does that happen that like there's a state and there's not like a single federally recognized tribe within it? Well, because Andrew Jackson tried to remove everybody, right? And so, right. Okay. I mean, that's the reason why there are pockets of communities in in the Southeast, but not as many as you might think, because, I mean, Andrew Jackson was trying to really remove everybody. And right. so you have the Mississippi Choctaws, you have the Eastern Band of Cherokee, you have the Florida Seminoles, right? Like mm-hmm. you have these pockets of of Indian communities in the Southeast. I mean, you have the Lumbees in North Carolina too, right? And so there were just, you know, opportunities when removal happened 
for individuals to run away, to stay in some capacity. And so what happened in Porch is that there were individuals who were offered land grants and folks who had kind of avoided being removed sort of mm-hmm. gathered together where where those land grants were. And that's how the Porch community ended up where it is. It's how okay. the Porch community sort of thrived after removal was because, you know, a lot of different Creek individuals ended up there after removal happened. Wow. Okay. So were these land grants still on traditional porch land or was it a bit of a shift there? No, it, it was still on traditional porch land. And, you know, it it was around these areas that were important because they had major waterways that people had used for, you know, thousands of years to trade and those sorts of things. And so it was what porch people call head of Padilla, but it's the head of the Perdido River. And that was where one of the the settlements of porch sort of started was there. Okay. So sorry, I took us kind of way away from the original topic, which was your dissertation, because I got real excited about things we were talking about. But I want to go back and you were talking about these, these were the patterns that you were seeing at um, Porch, you know, the before casino, after casino. And what did, when you looked at all of that in your thesis or your dissertation, sorry, what conclusions did you reach or what did you take away from that whole experience? Well, I think what, what I really took away was that people who had grown up in the community, who had experienced any kind of discrimination because of being from that community, those were the folks that were like the real ones, you know, like that's mm-hmm. how people from the community felt about, about folks who were from there and who were raised there, even if they didn't meet that legal definition of citizenship. And I think people were just, you know, I think now people are, are becoming more accepting of those after casino folks, but I think it took a long time. And I think that you know, it had to take a lot of healing from the individuals who had been on the receiving end of a lot of that discrimination, just because, you know, some of the people who were new and joining were were part of the faction that was doing that, you know, causing that trauma. Right. So, and I, and I do think, I mean, that was in 1999 when I was doing this field work, but I do think that, you know, people, or 1999, I'm sorry, 2009, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was in 2009. I was like, I was wow. like wait a second. I hadn't even gone to high school yet. No, no. It was, in, it was in 2009 when I was doing that field work. And, you know, I think things have really changed since then just because people are becoming more immersed into the community, even if they weren't before. And I think that when you're showing a real interest in learning about the culture and the history and becoming involved in community projects and there's so many opportunities at Porch now to to learn about culture, to take language classes, to, you know, take a, a Creek hymn class and those sorts of things that, you know, newer folks are becoming involved in. And I think when they show that kind of interest and real dedication to the community, I think that's when people start recognizing, okay, this is this is somebody who really cares about this community and isn't just interested in some economic benefit. So you mentioned hymns, and I, I remember yeah, when I was researching, looking around for this interview, you mentioned somewhere about how being in this larger state of Alabama, you know, really deeply religious part of the U.S., that that had really influenced porch identity as well. Could you talk a little bit more about that aspect? Yeah, absolutely. So What's interesting is that I was telling you the story about the local Episcopal priests sort of reaching out saying they need a a missionary to the porch community. And the Episcopalians were the first religious um, denomination to to show up and immediately built um, a couple churches, a school. The Porch Creek Indian Consolidated School was the first school that was built in the community for all students to be able to attend. And so you know, the Episcopalians really did a lot of work to, to help the community in terms of schooling, in terms of providing clothes and, and food and things like that in the community. And uh, the Episcopal Church was also the, the reason why a reservation was able to be established because they donated the land that, the, oh, wow. that part of the current reservation 
kind of presides over. And so there were a lot of things that the Episcopal Church was sort of doing and helping out the community, like in the early 1930s and 1940s. Then in the 1950s, a lot more kind of evangelical denominations start moving in. And so I was saying earlier that Tony Paredes had done all of these interviews with various people, and a lot of them were local religious leaders who were who were porch citizens or porch community members, but who also were leading these evangelical, Pentecostal, holiness-type churches. And so now on the reservation, there are, you know, a lot of different churches. And one of the things that I argue in my dissertation is that that is one of the ways in which people understand their Porch Creek identity is by going and attending an Indian church on the reservation. So I grew up going to St. Anna's Episcopal, which is a part of the reservation. It's the church that donated the land in the very beginning. But also there were Episcopal missionaries and Episcopal teachers who encouraged porch community members to seek out federal recognition in the 19 in the 1960s and so Calvin McGee who was our chief started going to organizations and trying to find out what he could and the community would you know have big fundraisers to be able to send him to Washington and send him to Montgomery to be able to advocate on behalf of the porch community and um, you know, he started doing that in the 1950s and 1960s, and it wasn't until the 1980s that we got federally recognized, and that was after he had passed. So, and a lot of a lot of the support that he got was from the churches, like you know, putting on these fundraisers and helping him get the money to travel to be able to to speak on behalf of Porch. He was at that big meeting in Chicago that Soul Tax organized. And actually took the demands from that that Chicago Indian meeting to D.C. So we have pictures of of Calvin McGee with with John F. Kennedy when he was president. So there's a lot of sort of interesting history that goes along with like the religion, the way in which religion plays into that. The other thing that I think is really interesting is that George Wallace loved Calvin McGee. And it's just so interesting because we have these pictures of George Wallace with his hand around Chief McGee's shoulders. He referred to the Porsche community as quote unquote his Indians. And I think that's really interesting to think about, right? Because here he is, the governor of Alabama, who is very openly racist and is, you know, trying to block black students from attending the University of Alabama. At the same time, he's really excited to take pictures with and, you know, sort of have photo ops with with Chief McGee. And so I think it's just something interesting to think about. And I know this is kind of off topic from your question, but I, I, I just wanted to put that in there because I am constantly fascinated by this. Yeah, that's crazy. I, that is very unexpected <laughs> coming from Wallace. Yeah, 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 it really is. Yeah. And, and this is something else that I talk about in my research is this, you know, is that in these photos, Chief McGee is always wearing like a plain style war bonnet. And, you know, I thought about this a lot and I do think that it has a lot to do with the fact that at the time in the 1950s and 1960s, the way that people could be identified as Indian was to dress like a Hollywood Indian, right? With a war bonnet, with, um, you know, buckskin clothes, like those sorts of things, which weren't necessarily things that Creek folks did ever. But in order to be read as a native person, there were certain expectations, I think, that the larger society had for for people to sort of enact in order to be recognized as legitimately native. You do this dissertation on porch identity and mm-hmm. which which, like you said, wasn't necessarily like where you originally intended to be working but the casino came up and that's that's what people in the community were really interested in so then how'd you decide where to go from there um good question I realized that I really do enjoy teaching and mentoring students and so I got my first tenure track job at this small liberal arts college and joined a joint sociology and anthropology department And I feel like, I don't want to say I'm a troublemaker, but (laughs) I do feel like it is is really hard for me to keep my mouth shut when I see something that I don't think is right. So 
you know, I, I had a series of incidents that happened, not just at this job, but when I was in graduate school as well, that I felt like were not ethical or Mm -hmm. just didn't live up to the kind of expectations that I had for an institution that I was associated with. And so I have bounced around a little bit because I have a really hard time not sort of naming inequality or racism or sexism or homophobia in the spaces that I'm operating in. And when the chief diversity officer of this college, who is a white male biologist, uh-huh. told me that, <laughs> yeah, he told me that there, there had been a faculty meeting where a psychology professor had used the terms racially underrepresented and academically underprepared as if they were the same thing um, uh-huh. to which I said, this is incredibly racist. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, right. And even I tell this story to is like, yeah, duh, it's racist. Right. <laughs> but he pointed, his, he pointed the, the chief diversity officer pointed his finger in my face and told me I didn't know what I was talking about. And so <laughs> I was just yeah. kind of like, okay, I got to get out of here. You yeah. know, like, so I, I did that. And then um, I ended up applying for a non-academic job where I was at, um, I was the director of the Native American Cultural Center at Yale University, as well as one of the assistant deans there in Yale College. And I really enjoyed that because I felt like I was able to work on the kind of programming that I went into and the students were amazing and I thought it was great. But after four years there, I kind of felt the pull to try to finish this book. And that wasn't going to happen unless I went back to an academic position where I could devote at least part of my time towards research. So that is how I ended up as an assistant professor once again at the University of Denver. And I have to tell you that I don't know if you have a lot of grad student listeners, but when I left that first tenure track job, okay, great. Because when I left that first tenure track job, Everybody told me that I would never get another one. You know, it was like this. I had, you know, crossed some line and it was taboo to even consider leaving a job because you weren't happy or because it was a toxic place. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm here to say that I got a, a tenure track job after leaving one. And I think this is the place for me because, you know, it's so difficult in anthropology to find people who have the same values as you. And so when I was doing my job interview, the chair of my department, Christina Kreps, was giving me the tour of the Museum of Anthropology here at the University of Denver. And she said, and over here we have our NAGPRA cabinets. And when we have a renovation, we're just hoping we don't need those because we're hoping that we get everything back to where it belongs. Yes. And that was the first (laughs) time ever heard, ever heard anybody who was a director of a museum say anything like that to, to acknowledge that this shouldn't be here in the first place. And I absolutely want this to be back where it belongs. Like that was the first time I ever heard anything like that. And I feel like my department now, because the university of Denver has this really messed up legacy with, in regard to the sand Creek massacre. Yeah. There is such a different perspective on indigenous issues here. People, not just people who work on indigenous issues, but, you know, a lot of people around the university are super interested in promoting and just being supportive of indigenous initiatives, as well as indigenous students and and especially indigenous faculty as well. Yeah. So first I want to say, like, I really, I feel like, we need to have another word other than troublemaker because, you know, that was definitely like a, what was it that uh, I think it was John Lewis said, like that you should get into good trouble. Right. I think, I feel like that is such a positive thing that you were doing, but it's like getting described in such a negative way. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like the people that I worked with would definitely call me a troublemaker. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, the thing is, is that my, my advisor, when he writes me letters, he says, you know, Kelly, I tell them that you tell the truth. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think of it as truth telling, but I think other people think of it as troublemaking. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, people don't like to be made uncomfortable, right? And in order for things to change and improve, people have to be uncomfortable. 
So yeah, yeah. so it's easier to to call you a troublemaker than face what's happening. But on that note, on our good trouble note, (laughs) we're going to go to our next break. (laughs) And then we have lots to keep going with when we come back. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, and we're back from our break. And I want to hear more about this position that you have at DU. You mentioned how it's such a good fit. And I'm so glad that you're in that environment instead of a toxic one. Um, (laughs) So can you... Tell us more about what you do and what your current role looks like. Yeah. So I am again in a tenure track position. And so I'm an assistant professor of anthropology. Um, I also serve as the curator of ethnology for the University of Denver Museum of Anthropology, which has been a very cool role to take on. But, you know, we, we do have a master's program at DU for anthropology in three different tracks. So we have museum anthropology, cultural anthropology, and archaeology, which is wonderful because I love being able to work with graduate students like the student that we know in common. And one of the things that I really love about this position is that I get to teach the graduate theory class for anthropology in the fall. It's their first required class. And part of the reason why I love that is because I've been really into this idea of decanonizing anthropology. And there is a a decanonizing syllabus that I will send you the link so you can add to the show notes. But it it was done by a group of graduate students and it is amazing. And it basically, you know, asks us to think through as anthropologists why there are certain people who are considered part of the canon and and people who aren't. So for example, Obviously, Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict are people that if you're in anthropology, you have read and know very well. Part of that is because they were trained by Papa Franz, right? Like by Franz Boas (laughs) at at Columbia. But Papa Franz also trained Zora Neale Hurston and Ella Deloria. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, when we think about why certain voices are privileged over others, I just think it's really interesting not to think about not just the the whole idea of decolonizing, but decanonizing and really bringing in these voices of people who have been marginalized and ignored in anthropology for so long. And so, you know, I just think having the ability to have master students to start think, to start thinking about those issues from the beginning has been something that I've loved watching. And I also really love to ask students to to question everything. I mean, you would be surprised the number of graduate students who will say, oh, well, I read this in undergrad, but nobody ever told me to question it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how can you not question Lewis Henry Morgan? <laughs> 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 so I'm just, kind of, I'm just kind of having a lot of fun teaching classes where I'm really asking students to think differently about our discipline and to think with a more critical eye about what we're doing and also how we're training students. Yeah. So, okay. Your dissertation, it's on identity, right? And Mm -hmm. that seems like it's, it's really important also in your work with students that, that that's something that is a priority for you, that students of any identity feel, you know, comfortable and safe with you. Do you feel like there's like any sort of a connection there, like anything you took from your dissertation and have applied it in any sort of way to your work with students? That's a really interesting question, but I don't necessarily think it has to do with my research. I think it has more to do with 
my experiences as a student. Mm -hmm. I graduated with a class of 18 from this rural podunk school from high school. And so, you know, I was the only person I knew that ever went to school out of state. And, you know, Duke is a really good school. And when I got there, everybody was talking about all of their AP credits that were transferring. And I had no idea what an AP credit was. And so I I just remember feeling so out of place in that environment. There were two other Native students that I met, but it was a very small Native population at Duke at the time. And I just felt really out of place. I mean, I I called home a lot, (laughs) especially that first year. I had decided I was going to be a chemistry major because I loved it in high school. I had a really great teacher. But, you know, if you've never had a lab before and suddenly you're taking chemistry with all the pre-meds at Duke, um, that's a problem. And so... My first semester at Duke, I mean, I was a valedictorian of my high school. And my first semester of Duke, I got a D plus in chemistry and it destroyed me. And yeah. so I just felt really, I mean, now I know the term is academically underprepared, but at the time I just felt dumb. And so I, I feel like the whole idea around imposter syndrome, I know, you know, people have different issues with that, but it's the closest thing that I have to sort of naming what I was feeling at the time. And so I really try really hard to make sure that students who are in my classes feel comfortable sharing if they want to feel comfortable with who they are and feel comfortable, you know, bringing in their perspective into the classroom. Because I think, you know, it's only when we're faced with difference that we really learn. And I, and I do think that a lot of learning comes through being uncomfortable. And so I really try to encourage students to be okay with being uncomfortable, be okay with silence, be okay with the kinds of things that in, you know, in the United States, we aren't necessarily comfortable with a lot. Right. So I really hope that, that students are able to bring their full selves to our classes and really be open to, to learning while, when they do that. Yeah. And I mean, obviously like it's working, I mean, because the student we know in common, you know, their reaction was, I want to take every single class that Dr. Fayard teaches. I want to, you know, you know, so there's, they're clearly feeling safe and excited to learn with you. So, and hi, if you're listening. (laughs) So is there something like... You know, obviously there's a lot of other professors that listen to this podcast as well. Is there anything like any tangible examples of of what that could look like that you do in your classroom or your office hours or things like that to make sure people um, are feeling as safe and included as they can? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I really like to do, especially at the beginning of a class that I feel like will have a lot of, you know, the kind of hot topics that people have really strong opinions about. And the first is just to acknowledge that, you know, all the things that we take for granted as natural and the things that, you know, people do tend to get really, you know, passionate about are all social constructs. So, you know, when we think about gender or sexuality or religion or race or, you know, any of the kind of the things that people just get can get really upset about, like we talk about all those things in anthropology, right? Politics. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so the first thing is just to acknowledge that these are, and kind of talk through what that means. Like, it doesn't mean they aren't real. It doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that there aren't real world implications, but it doesn't mean that they're not natural. It doesn't mean that there isn't a natural category for these things. Right. And that people around the world think about them really differently. And so to really, you know, emphasize that, But then also something that I have figured out really helps students feel more comfortable is that on the first day of class, we build a list of classroom agreements and, you know, we, we listen to each other. And, you know, one of the things that I always want to say is that I'm going to assume that you have good intentions because even, even in a class on that's called native North America, The first day of class, people don't know what to say. Can we say Mm -hmm. Indian? Do we say Native American? Do we say Indigenous? Do we say First Nations? There's all of these nerves around, like, I don't want to mess up. And so I'm not going to say anything because I don't really know how to name what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. And so when I say to students, like, I'm going to assume good intentions on your side. And so what I need from you is that if you say something that, I, I'm not going to get mad if you say, if you mess up, 
But what mm-hmm. I'm going to do is correct you. And I need you to be open to hearing that. Yeah. And if you kind of talk about it in the beginning, I find that students are much more willing to sort of be less defensive. I mean, anytime somebody is correcting mm-hmm. you, it, you, your automatic reaction, my automatic reaction is to get defensive. But if you're right. able to sort of skip that reaction take a deep breath and then try to hear what somebody is saying to you. That's that this is what we spend our whole first class talking about is I'm going to assume good intentions on your part. I need you to hear me. If I'm trying to help you understand something a little bit better and try not to get defensive. If you need to take some time and step out of the class because you are feeling defensive, go for it. You know, mm-hmm. basically do what you need to do to get to a place where you're going to be able to hear what we're talking about in class. Right. So we spent a lot of time just kind of coming up with different agreements around, okay, I'm going to listen to you before I respond and let you finish your statement. Right. And so just, mm-hmm. just, you know, making students aware of the way in which the classroom is going to operate, even when we are in a debate about something, even when we don't agree on something, I think it helps them to know that I'm not going to be judging them. I'm just trying to help them learn more right. and, I'm going to do that in a way that is as gentle as possible <laughs> mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that it's not going to be a situation where they'll be canceled. Like nobody's right. going to call you a racist if you accidentally use the wrong word. Right. 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 We're going to just talk about it as a class and maybe talk about like the history of a particular term, but I'm not going yeah. to think of you any differently because you messed up one time. Right. Right. So that's something that I think has been instrumental in not only making students feel like our classes are a place where they can make mistakes, but also just by having these conversations, I find that students are much more willing to participate, even if they tend to be a more shy student generally, they participate more uh, right. just by having these sort of classroom agreements laid out so that they understand and and know what what the stakes are. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because I do think that's a really good idea. We do that for a lot of other things, but not in classrooms. Right, right. I mean, I learned that from like nonprofit work, right? Like people sort of build, you know, rules or discussion guides or, you know, sort of agreements that, I mean, you just see it happen in other places, but not in the classroom. And I just think it's such a good tool to use there to make people feel like it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to have a different opinion. And that's, that's how we learn. Right. Yeah. You're here to learn. So you have to be open to learning, but then like, I'm going to do it in a way that makes you feel safe in continuing with that learning. Yeah. And I, I also think it's important to model these mm-hmm. sorts of things too. Right, and right. so I definitely, I had a class, uh, the first year I was here, um, I taught this indigenous feminisms class and it's a class I really love to teach, but the students kind of had, a moment in the mid in the middle of the quarter where they were like, this is too much reading. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, my first instinct was to like snap back, like, well, you're graduate students, so you need to get with the program. Right. But, <laughs> you know, I listened to them and I mean, it took a lot to kind of sit there and take it and right. then recognize like, you know what, I think you're right. I'm going to think about how we can restructure the syllabus and when we come, when we meet again, we can, we can talk more about this, but I'll have, I'll have some plans. And so I did that. And the, <laughs> the, the evaluations I got for that class, my chair still reminds me like, you know, they said that class changed their lives. <laughs> oh, that's I, you know, awesome. I, th- I think part of it is just because I was able, and it was hard. I'm not going to say it was easy. Like it upset me for days, <laughs> but yeah. in the moment I was really able to not react in a defensive way. And I think that really made all the difference. Right. Well, and that's just such a huge life skill. I mean, we're talking about like, you know, the canon and all of these things, which is really important, but also like just knowing how to, you know, receive criticism and know that it's not about you and that it's just really about bettering the work and the the situation. Like that's a really important life skill that we don't get enough of. Yeah. And, And I think also, you know, I have encountered people who are professors who just automatically think that they know better 
than the mm-hmm. students. And right. I just don't have that attitude, you know, like yeah. I learn from my students every single quarter. And I feel like they bring a perspective to things that is always energizing to me because at this point I'm getting pretty old and it's fun that they're still very young and, you know, have new ideas and have different ways of thinking about things. And, you know, I'm not afraid to make mistakes in front of them. And I'm also not afraid to tell them that, that I'm wrong about something or that I don't know. And I feel like that was not necessarily my experience in graduate school in particular. And so I just, you know, I just want to try to be everything that I didn't have, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I want to try to be the kind of professor that people do want to confide in and, and, and feel safe around as opposed to feeling like I'm always going to be the one who is putting them down or telling them that I know better, if that makes sense. Yeah. Is there something that uh, you feel like, you know, you're hearing from your students and you're like, oh, that's interesting. Like any, any sort of patterns or things that you've noticed? Besides current um, colloquialisms from the youngsters, like that is my favorite thing about teaching younger people is that I never feel like I'm out of touch with like the current trends on language use. So I really appreciate that. But that's more of a fun thing. I do think that the students that I work with are more willing to be critical of the discipline in ways that I'm interested in. You know, I feel like if you were following the whole fiasco around the president of the AAA President Gupta's apology to indigenous people or his uh, AAA presidential address, you know that there was a visceral reaction from older anthropologists. And, you know, that is really troublesome to me because I feel like this is a a discipline that prides itself on its self-reflexivity and its move away from its colonial beginnings and things like that. But I think we have to be like realistic Okay, I think that there are still those people around. I I think that they are very vocal. And so for me, I just really appreciate when students come in with this critical eye towards the discipline and who are ready to really sink their teeth into the theories and figure out, you know, what we can use and what we need to leave behind. Yeah. Well, between your teaching and your museum work, what are some things that uh, you think should be carried on and, and what do you think needs to be left behind? I mean, that is an exhausting question for me because I have so many examples of people saying really wild things to me. Yeah. People should should I maybe reframe are- that to, you know, like <laughs> what you're excited about in the future, like a little less uh, yeah. uh, trauma? Well, I just, I just feel like we're a discipline that loves to pat ourselves on the back. And I just feel like Mm -hmm. it's too early. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like there are people who were in my cohort who would cuss me out in graduate school because I was involved in the repatriation efforts from the Museum of Anthropology at the University of Michigan, which was, you know, one of the worst cases of I mean, I'm going to call it NACPRA fraud. I don't even know if that's a thing, but, you know, it was one of the worst cases of museum professionals deciding that something was culturally unidentifiable just so they didn't have to return it. Uh. And, you know, those, those kinds of things where, you know, this is not that long ago and the people that I was being trained with were in support of these really terrible practices. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think that, it's just too early to start saying like we're a different discipline or we've changed. I mean, yes, there has been some change, but I also feel like there is so far to go as a discipline until we get to a place where I feel comfortable saying like, okay, now we can pat ourselves on the back. Now we can feel better about what we're doing. I guess I'll leave that question then for another day, but is there anything else that you (laughs) want to get across to our listeners, like anything that you were hoping to say that you didn't get to, um, any last thoughts? Uh, no, I don't think so. I just, I really appreciate this conversation and I've had a really nice time chatting with you. And I, I thank you so much for asking me to be on the show. Yeah. I, it's never enough time. (laughs) It's like you would think an hour would be enough time, but it's never enough time. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed talking to you. Hopefully we'll get to do it again sometime. And um, yeah, just thank you so much for for taking so much time and obviously for 
making students feel so welcome and and included and excited about learning. So seeing that firsthand, uh, like I was telling uh, Dr. Carroll the other day when we recorded his episode, you know, I think there's only been three professors who have been referred to me by their students and you're two of those three. So, so I think that says a lot. So thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at at livingheritageanthropology.org. If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org. You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Belenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Come.